Have you, heard, have you ever heard the phrase being centered? Being centered, you heard that before. If you haven't, it really, at least when it's talking about psychologically and spiritually, it's talking about being, you're grounded, you're healthy, you're focused, you, you have your, literally, you know, figuratively, your feet on the ground and you know where you're headed, who you belong to. It's an important principle uh, to be centered in your life. And this evening we're beginning a series in Second Peter. Uh, we're starting in chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 1 and 2 this evening. We're going to talk about being centered. Second uh, Peter is a tremendously diverse book. In chapter 1, it kind of deals with, uh, with our faith. Chapter 2, false teachers. Chapter 3, the end of time. So we're really going to kind of take each chapter as a separate sermon series. In this first chapter, we're going to talk about living well in a wild world. You know, it, it always comforts me to know that the people in the Bible times lived in a really uh, yucky world. Uh, morally, ethically, uh, you know, it was not a democracy, and, and you know, they, they killed you for being Christian, things like that. And, and so, you know, growing up, I always heard the old-timers say it's never been as bad as it is now. And now as I'm approaching old-timerness, uh, you know, well, I'm about 30 years away from it, but, you know, it is easy to always say, boy, it was not this bad 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever. But, but it's, it's, you know, the, the world's had some really bad times. In 2 Peter, we, uh, we believe that Peter, strangely enough, Peter wrote this, this book. In, in verse 1, it says, uh, it says, this letter is from Simon Peter. I'm, I'm reading using the New Living Translation tonight. This letter is from Simon Peter. It's interesting. He calls himself Simon Peter there. In some translations, it says Simeon Peter, which uh, he was from the tribe of Simeon. That was uh, his uh, great, 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 great was Jacob and, and Leah, and he is part of that tribe. So Simon is, is kind of a probably a, a cut-down version of the Simeon that we know him as Simon Peter refers to himself by both of these names. This was probably written about somewhere around A.D. 63 to 67, somewhere in there, 30-something years after the death and resurrection of Christ. Probably written from Rome, and shortly after this letter, Paul was executed, we believe, possibly crucified upside down by the emperor Nero. Who was he writing to? We have a map, and I want to show you on this map that... Kind of, it's kind of hard to see. That's Rome over here. Pa- Peter's writing from Rome, probably, and he's writing to the part of the world uh, over over in here. Pro- this is uh, uh, Bithynia, and here in Asia, and in this area over in here is where we believe this letter was originally intended for, probably to Jewish Christians and to non-Jewish Christians. But certainly, it was a letter. It was whoever's going to read it that God was going to speak to him through it, and it certainly was written for you and me 2,000 years later, no question about it. Okay, I want to share with you tonight five things. Don't panic. We'll get through these pretty quick. You're thinking 20 minutes a point, we're here till nine, but that's not where we're going. I want to share with you five things from these first two verses. Last night I was preaching to Cindy because I was so fired up about this passage. And, and after she went to sleep after about 35 minutes, and I thought, well, this isn't going to go well tomorrow night. But, man, I, you know, whether I can bring it out or not, there's some really good stuff in these verses. I want to begin with this. How do you have a sinner grounded life. Number one, know who you belong to. Know who you belong to. In verse one, this letter is from Simon Peter, a slave of Jesus Christ. That Bible word slave literally means 
a slave. In the Roman Empire that Jesus, that Paul, that Peter lived in, there was an estimated 60 million slaves. They knew what a slave was. Let me define what a slave was 2,000 years ago. A slave was a piece of property. If you were fortunate, you had a good slave owner, but you were still a slave. You had no rights. You had only privileges that they gave you. Where you lived, what you did was completely up to the master. How you spent your time was completely up to the master. Uh, Whether you lived or died was up to guess who? It was up to the master. It was really important to have a good master, wasn't it? If you were going to be someone's property. Here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, look, man, I want to tell you, I'm a slave, but I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. Jesus owns me. I'm not my own. I am his. That's good stuff, isn't it? And I want to tell you this evening, I hope you belong to Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, you may have forgotten this, but you know what? You're not your own anymore. Do you hear me? (laughs) You belong to somebody. See, most of the problems we have in life, church fights, fights with our spouses, fights with our bosses, fight with employees, fight with our friends. Most of the time, not all the time, most of the time it's about me, me, and my, right? What would happen if we started pushing me, me, and my away and said, you know, I belong to God. My time, my money, my energy, my service, where I live and what I do is God's because I am God's property. Isn't that good? Who do you belong to, friend? You don't belong to some person. If you're married, you certainly have an attachment there. I'm not denying or, or trying to push that apart. But ultimately, you know what? I belong to God. There's a story told in the Civil War when the Union Army was coming through parts of the South. And after Abraham Lincoln had done his... uh, uh, a proclamation, emancipation proclamation, they would come through and they were liberating slaves. And, and one day a Union soldier came in and they had taken over this area and he told this young girl, he said, you're free. She'd never been free in her whole life. He said, what do you mean I'm free? He said, you're, you're free. I'm liberating you. Who do I belong to? You don't belong to anybody. Where do I go? He said, you can go anywhere you want to go. She looked at him and smiled and she said, I'm going with you. You know what? Jesus Christ set us free to make us his slave. <laughs> and making, being Jesus Christ's slave is the most liberating thing there is in the whole world. You know what? Because if I belong to him, he's responsible for me. Amen? And my responsibility is to stay and never forget who I belong to. Do you belong to him? Are you acting like you belong to him? You want to be centered? Never forget, Christian, you belong to God. Number two, know and be about your God-assigned task. Okay, you belong to God. God's left you here for a purpose. It involves more than just eating and breathing. He's left you here for a reason. Verse 1, Peter says, I'm a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. What was an apostle? Apostle was two things in the New Testament. One thing was, it, it was a person who had specifically been a part of the earthly ministry of Jesus. They had 
seen Jesus. They had seen him die. They had seen him arise from the grave. And, and technically, we would say we had 12 apostles at that point who were part of his ministry here the whole time. Paul said he was an apostle because he too saw the resurrected Jesus. So in one way, Paul was given some credibility. They're dealing with false teachers, and somebody needs to step up and be a man. And Paul said, listen, I belong to my master, and I'm fixing to defend my master. I can't. I'm an apostle. It gave him a credibility and authority. But an apostle also had a broader meaning. Apostle simply means one who is sent. It's an ambassador for someone else. We might think of an uh, an apostle in a very simple way as being an evangelist who travels, a missionary, or a church planner. I believe Paul was stating his his credibility and authority, but I think he was also saying this. Listen, I belong to Jesus, and I know what he's left me here to be about. I'm a missionary to the Jewish people. That was his task. I'm an evangelist. I'm a church planner. And by the way, if you're going to mess with my churches, you're going to mess with Peter. You did not want to mess with him. We'll see that in chapter 2. I want to ask you this evening. You know why God's left you here? What a terribly frustrating thing. So many people are going to die and go to heaven and never realize why they were on earth. Do you know God's gifted you? God's given you talents. God's given you abilities. How much time are you investing saying, God, show me what you want me to be about? Why have you left me here? Maybe it's to be a preacher. Maybe it's to be a teacher. Maybe it's to be a greeter. You realize how important greeters are on Sunday morning? No matter how well we sing or preach, if we're not friendly, they're not coming back. And I don't blame them. Maybe it's working with youth or working with kids. Maybe it's being a missionary. Maybe it's doubling up your prayer efforts and being a prayer warrior. Maybe you've got money and it's giving. What has God left you here for? Find your task and get after it. You can't be centered if you're not doing what God's left you here to do. Someone said, when we don't know what to do, we're frustrated. When we're doing the wrong thing, we're irritated. And I would say this, when we know what we're supposed to be doing and we're not doing, we're just sinful. We're just sinful. I want to share with you something that I saw that that I thought was pretty good. There's a verse in Acts 17. I'm reading this from the King James. It, It says, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither. That's why we have newer translations, correct? But they've turned the world upside down and come hither. The story is told of an, an old eccentric English evangelist, this was hundreds of years ago, who took this text out to an open area to preach. Had hundreds of people gathered around him begin to preach. Here's what he said. First, he said, the world is wrong side up. Amen. He said, second, the world must be turned upside down. To turn, it's wrong side up. To turn it upside down is to turn it right side up. You follow me? You not follow me. <laughs> and he said, third, we are the ones to set it right side up. And listen, when we find out what God has left us here to do and we get about it, we are helping an upside down world get set right side up that's what God's left us here to do not to criticize not to complain not to gripe not to whine but to make a difference and when we get grounded in who God's left us here to be you know what we're going to be centered in our personal life aren't we some of you are dissatisfied because you're not being about what God's left here to be about you can correct that ASAP 
Number three, know your value to God. Man, how many self-esteem issues do people have? We could get Brandon to share with us for hours, I'm sure, on that. Verse one, you're saying, Pastor, you're beating it to death. I could beat this for another hour. Just thank God I'm not going to. I'm a slave. This is who I belong to. I'm an apostle. This is why I'm here. I'm writing to you who share the same precious faith that we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. Leave that there. Uh, Go back to the first of it, Brian, and I'm going to kind of walk us through that. He says, I'm Simon Peter. Some scholars believe he's saying, I'm Simon the old sinful guy. I'm Peter who was renamed by Jesus Christ, the rock. Some of you are sinners who need to understand God's made you into something different. We're all sinners, but we don't need to live on that side of it as believers, do we? He's writing to second and third generation Christians. No doubt some of them were Gentiles, and a lot of the Jewish people looked down on the the non-Jewish Christians, they were second class. You read the book of Acts, you know, they can struggle whether they could be saved or not. And he says this, I'm writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. If you're taking notes, you need to write this down. That word precious means honor or of equal value. Here's how it was used in, in the society in Peter's day, this word precious. It was a foreigner, we would say an alien, who ask for and receive citizenship in a foreign country. It was a foreigner who asked for and received citizenship to be equal to a native-born citizen of that land and received it. Folks, you and I can't understand this, but to be a non-Roman citizen made you a piece of property. When you became a Roman citizen and you had the equal rights of Scott Leachman, who had been a Roman citizen since great-grandpa Leachman came to Rome from the, you know, Plymouth, Massachusetts, you know, through that way years ago. When you got that Roman citizenship, you were, man, it was precious. If you've ever watched when, when people become citizens of our country at those play, times when they're sworn in, it is a joyful occasion. And he's saying, you've got something that is of equal value to what I have. Listen to the last part of this. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. Some Bibles put righteousness, and we think of righteousness there, of being Jesus died on the cross and making us right with him. But the justice and fairness is the best concept. Here's what Peter was saying. Peter was saying, look, you may feel like you're not a a super apostle or a super saint, but he was telling these people, he goes, look, You've got the same precious faith and citizenship in God that I have. Because God is equal. God is fair. God plays on the same playing field with everybody. Isn't that great? That anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when you get saved, you are in the same spot that anybody else is. Can you imagine how these people felt about this? Peter is telling them, here's Peter who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, saw him die, was on the Mount of Transfiguration, saw him come out of the tomb. And Peter's saying, if you are saved, you have the exact same faith 
and relationship to Jesus that I had. Is that not great? That's saying to you and me tonight that the Pope may be a great guy. He doesn't have anything on you if you've got Jesus. Billy Graham's a great guy. He doesn't have anything on you if you have Jesus. Our commitments may be way different. That's on you. But you have a precious faith that's of equal standing to anybody who's ever followed Christ, including Paul. Isn't that wonderful? You lay, you lay in bed tonight and your self-esteem is struggling. Go back and think about this. I possess a faith in Christ that is just as real, just as valuable as Paul's, Peter, and John's. Isn't that wonderful? Listen, it grounds you a little bit when you think about how valuable you are to God. Here's number four. To be grounded, you've got to know who Jesus is. Now, I'm not trying at all to, to be critical. And if I misrepresent some group and you can pr- tell me and show me that I have, let me know after church and I'll correct it. Here's what I know fairly accurately. Muslims believe that Jesus was a good man and a good prophet. I had an imam in Fort Worth that I knew, not had a close relationship, but I knew, and he told me one day, yes, I like Jesus very much. He's a good prophet. Okay. Jehovah Witness and Mormons believe Jesus is the Son of God. They just don't believe he's God. A Jewish person who's not been converted to Christ. If you hear the term messianic Jew, that means one who has accepted Jesus as Messiah. They don't believe Jesus is the Son of God or God. Cindy and I had a Jewish friend in New York, and he told me one time, he said, hey, he may be the Messiah, he may not. That's not not really a good response, in my opinion. Look in the end of verse 1, and I promise you I'm going to get out of this verse after this point. The faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. Did you just hear what I read? Jesus Christ is not separating the Father and the Son here. In verse 2, it does. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. But here he says... Very clearly, Jesus is God. Wow. Is Jesus the Son of God? Absolutely. Is Jesus God? Absolutely. Can we understand that rationally? Absolutely not. Do you have to? Absolutely not. Somebody tells you that's simple and they understand it, don't trust them with anything else they tell you because they're either a liar or they're dumb. That's not simple. But the Bible says Jesus is the Son of God, and He is God. It says Jesus Christ, our God and Savior in the Old Testament, God the Father is referred to as the Savior. Jewish people looked at God the Father as the Savior. Jesus Christ is called God here, and He is called the Savior. In verse 2, He says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I shared this a few weeks ago. Remember the the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. They translated it to Greek. About Jesus' day, it's called the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. 
The word Lord, kuros, always in the Old Testament referred to God the Father. He is Lord. And here it says Jesus Christ is Lord. It's like a double stamp. It's saying Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? You know who Jesus is? He's the Son of God. He is God. He is Lord, Master, and Ruler. Let me tell you, the thing in our world today that's going to divide you, you can get up and say, man, I believe in God. I'm for God. I'm for prayer. You can say all that mushy stuff and you can come to church. But what's going to split is what you believe about. About Jesus. Heaven and hell is going to be determined what you believe about Jesus. And you need to be willing, listen, I'm telling you the truth, you need to be willing to die over this issue. You need to know who he is. He's God, the Son of God, the Savior, and Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Look, you want your feet on the ground, you want to be centered, you want to be grounded, you've got to be square on who Jesus is. And lastly, we need to grow more and more in our relationship with Jesus. We're going to talk about knowing Jesus again. In fact, 16 times in three chapters, the the Greek word that we're going to see in a moment, know, is used. It was huge to Peter. Peter was addressing what was beginning to be a growing problem, was going to really crop up in later days called Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word Gnosis, which which was about knowledge. Gnosticism basically said this, that you know God by some deep mystical knowledge. And Zach, he is never going to be smart enough to know God that way like I do. You know, it's just for special people like Wesley and I who know God like that in this deep, deep way. And by the way, this kind of knowledge doesn't affect my life and my morals. I can preach to you and live as I want to because I have a deep, intimate knowledge of Jesus. Let me tell you, I'm telling you, this is creep back in. It's, 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 it's in different ways. It's covered in different things. But any, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on the bandwagon and say, anytime somebody starts talking about they got so much more knowledge than you and they're arrogant about their knowledge, that's sinful. The word knowledge, let me define this word for you that's used here. The word knowledge here in verse 2, may you grow more and more in the grace and the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. It, it's a clear and exact knowledge. Listen, it's a participatory knowledge, an experiential knowledge. It's a clear, exact knowledge, a participatory knowledge. It's a knowledge that exerts influence upon the one who knows. It's a salvation knowledge. Listen, you need to be grounded intellectually about who Jesus is, but it's got to move from there. It's got to move to your heart. We call that getting saved. And then when you get saved, you enter a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then God says, if you want your life to be what it should be, keep growing intellectually, but you need to grow spiritually. You need to grow more and more in love with Jesus. You need to pray. You need to study your Bible. By the way, you need to live out your Bible. There's no growth without obedience. And listen to what he promises. Put the verse back up there again. When you grow, he says this, God will give you more and more grace. He'll multiply this. Grace is joy, but it also means kindness and undeserved favor. And peace, that is rest. That's an inner tranquility. Boy, in the world looking for this today. Don't we desire to have the peace of God and and, and have God's grace and mercy poured out on us. But we want, the, 
We want the product without the process. You with me? Don't raise your hands. Do not raise your hands. Do not point. How many of you want to lose weight? Nobody's looking. Nobody. But you don't want to diet and exercise. Correct? We were talking about this this morning. We're going to pray, God, take the fat off of me and pass the bluebell. Okay? You got to do your part. That's like the kid that's, that prays that they'll pass the test and doesn't study. Spank them. And God's saying, listen, if you want peace and you want God's grace, it's not going to just happen. You know Jesus, and if you're a Christian, you have come to a knowledge of him, but it's an ever-advancing growth. Grounded happens, centering happens when we know Jesus and we're growing in Jesus. I want to read to you one other thing. This was by a man named Arthur Burns. He was a Jewish Christian an economist. He was a very well-known man in Washington, D.C. for years, and he was asked to pray at a gathering of evangelical politicians. That almost sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? (laughs) Listen, listen to what he prayed. Lord, I pray that the Jewish people would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. I pray that the Buddhists would come to know Jesus Christ. I pray that the Muslims would come to know Christ. You'd be killed today for saying this. And most stunning of all, he closed his prayer. Lord, I pray that Christians would come to know Jesus Christ. Wow. That's what he's telling us here. It's not enough just to know him here. You've got to know him here. And then when you know him here, the rest of your life, it's a pursuit to grow in that grace and that intimate relationship with him. And when you do that, your feet are planted on solid ground. So here's the question. Number one, do you know him? I mean, do you really know him? If you don't, if you've never given your life to Christ, when we stand in a moment, you come and let us help you find Jesus. Maybe you're here and you'd like to join our church. We would love for you to. And I want to pledge this promise to you. We're going to do everything we can to help you grow and be centered in Jesus Christ. Christian, maybe where you're standing or maybe at the altar tonight, there's some area that we've touched on that you need to get your feet back on the ground. Every one of us needs to say, God, please help me to never lose my passion to grow and know you. Let's stand. As God leads you, respond to him this evening.